The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. A lot to get into. Very latest coming out of Israel. Both a uh, extension of that temporary pause and also some indications of what is going to come next. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into all of that. We also have the White House panicking over so-called misinformation about the economy. <laughs> Break that one down for you. Um, some behind-the-scenes details about what may have transpired that triggered the temporary firing of Sam Altman before he was brought back at OpenAI says a lot about the future of AI and the direction that that whole industry is going in. We also wanted to dig into those violent riots that unfolded in Ireland. It's quite shocking. And some of the uh, untold details about what may have caused yes. that uh, outburst uh, of anger and violence. So we'll get into that. Also, APAC apparently extremely desperate to get Rashida Tlaib out of office. You now have multiple candidates who say that they have been offered $20 million to fund a campaign against Rashida Tlaib coming from APAC-affiliated donors. So break that down for you. I've also got some news about what's going on at the RNC. Not looking good in terms of their finances. Maybe they should talk to those other donors. There seems to be a lot of money flying around. And George Santos is uh, going ham on his colleagues. Uh, he's going out with a bang. Yeah, it's sort of a Madison Cawthorn kind of vibe. Hey, maybe on this he's one. telling the truth this time. Okay, this is this might be know. the most believable thing he has ever said. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> with all true. of that, though, before we get to that, we have our excellent merchandise that's currently on sale for the holiday season. We've got these cozy socks, which I wear all the time. But of course, you know, we've got the sweater, we've got the ornament, we have the uh, the travel coffee mug, all of that, if you will, all of it available on shop.breakingpoints.com or at a link just from our website. And at the same time, you know, as a thank you for everybody, and I know it's the holiday season, and this also includes existing premium subscribers who would like to gift a subscription. Uh, we are currently discounting our yearly membership at $90 a year. So go ahead and take advantage of that. All of that at breakingpoints.com. It helps support the show, helps uh, really our expansion efforts. We're prepping, of course, for the 2024 election, which we're kind of in the middle of. A lot more new focus groups and other new ideas and cool stuff that we're able to bring to all of you. So any of those, uh, buying merch or signing up for membership, giving a gift, any of those really does help us out uh, a lot over here. But with that, let's get to this right. I also want to say shout out to oh. Kurt. Who was wearing oh, a beautiful, that's right. ugly we actually sweatshirt saw one in the wild. last night yeah. at uh, Ryan Grimm's book event here yeah. in the city? And uh, he looked fantastic well, in it. And uh, yeah, it was fun to see. You know, I'm jealous because, Kurt, you have a sweater before I have a sweater, I know. That's okay? exactly so what I, I said. I, too. I don't even have one. It looked yet. great so, on him, though. All right, so, all right, go. let's go ahead and get to what is, of course, very serious news. Um, I want to start with this, even though we do have the news about the ceasefire temporarily extend. We're going to break that down for you as well. But as a way to set the tone for this segment, we've been talking about how Netanyahu is under true. Tremendous pressure. Basically, everyone in Israel wants him gone. Mm -hmm. He's just been trying to hold on by, you know, the skin of his fingertips as long as he possibly can. Delay, delay, delay any sort of accountability to try to maintain his grip on power. We now have a scoop. This is from Israeli media about, put this up on the screen, about the case he is making to his fellow Likud party members. Likud being, you know, his right-wing party um, that he has been the head of for some time. He says... He should stay in government because, quote, I'm the only one who will prevent a Palestinian state in Gaza, Judea, and Samaria, which is the name that Zionists call the West Bank. He says, I'm the only one who can withstand U.S. pressure. He goes on to say it's because he knows Biden for 40 years, which has the ring of truth because mm -hmm. Biden is so, like, relationship-based, very similar to Trump in that way. And I know how to manage American public opinion. Now, keep in mind that consistently from the beginning of, you know, this outbreak of conflict, the one thing that Biden has always said is, I'm committed to a two-state solution. Afterwards, we've got to get to a two-state solution. So here you have the head of government actively admitting at this moment, not only is he not interested in peace, he is making an affirmative case that they should keep him in power because he, will, he is damn sure and determined to make sure that Palestinians never have a state. So incredibly important context to keep in mind in terms of what may unfold in Gaza going forward, what the political dynamics are going to look like inside of Israel. And also, I mean, this is just thumbing the nose at the U.S. president yeah, at actually, a time when we've provided them with unequivocal and totally unconditional support, including comments that there are no red lines for their operation here. For me, that was the biggest uh, takeaway because this is it's obvious, Bibi has said it many times before, about preventing Palestinian statehood, about how uh, the Likud party and others should actually be uh, hopeful that Hamas remains in power because that's the perfect cudgel to say that there's no reason we should move forward with the peace process. Yeah. But I thought the fact is, is that he's willing to say this to his own party to try and save his own skin at the very same time that he's not an idiot. He knows what, we can't read or hit Google Translate. We can, obviously can see clearly about what is happening. Don't forget either, Crystal, we have a pretty good visibility apparently into uh, Israeli spy networks um, because we had 
those Discord leaks, and one of the things that came out uh, that from those uh, classified files, which we reported on here on the show, was specifically about our visibility into Mossad and their efforts to try and thwart Bibi eventually coming back into power. So mm-hmm. at a spy level, I'm almost certainly we're getting updates in the same way that we spied on the Ukrainians about, like, hey, what are they actually saying to each other? And the fact that if it's now spilling out into the Israeli press about what the end state here, it just shows you how the fundamental long-term goal for Bibi Netanyahu and for the United States, and really I think anybody who is legitimately pro-Israel, is just diverging to a point where it has to be untenable. I mean, Bibi should have gone, I think, really the day after October 7th, or at the very least at the beginning of the war to ensure real like coalitional support inside Israeli society and to give anybody who's pro-Israel in the US the unequivocal support that they would want. But the issue is that while they have that, with the the stated goal of U.S. policy going all the way back to Bill Clinton and honestly even before that, yeah. is a two-state solution. It has remained unchanged. It now actionably, actionable-wise, it wasn't a priority under the Trump administration, the Biden administration, or the Bush administration. Let's all be honest. The same with Obama, but it still remains the thing that we are all supposed to be working towards. And if he is directly opposed to the desired end state as articulated by the American president and really by the American Congress, uh, by all of the Western allies who are supportive of him so far, then why is he currently you know, getting the 100% support right. from the US Congress and from that administration? Right. So he's putting them in a place where, look, you know, they can beat the drum of like, we support Israel's right to defend itself. I think that'll last up until the end of the war. But you know, eventually, the bombs will end. Eventually, the military campaign has to come to a close. And at that point, if they're going to, you know, at already, while they're, you know, John Kirby has said there are no red lines, yeah. uh, Secretary Blinken has been like, there will be no mass expulsion from the Gaza Strip. There will be no, you know, uh, leaving to Egypt and never coming back. There will be no, uh, you know, mass deportation. They are going to remain in Gaza, and there will be a state. Now, we're a long way away from that, but that is the estated goal of U.S. policy. So, for me, that's the big story, is that he's laying it out that his only future is one directly opposed to U.S. policy, and in my opinion, U.S. interests, which it always has been, uh, to have a two-state solution. Well, I would also say it's counter to Israeli interests, given that, you know, this direction of denying any sort of a state and propping up Hamas— has that led to security for the Israeli people? I think that's uh, clearly um, has not worked in that direction. And, you know, there's a lot to say about this because um, you always hear this rhetoric about how there's no partner for peace on the Palestinian side. And, of course, that's always been the goal of Netanyahu and people on, you know, on the right wing of Israeli politics, which is the majority of the Israeli public at this point and have, you know, been dominating politics. They always say there's no partner for peace on the Palestinian side. And, you know, that has some legitimacy, even though— Hamas, actually even Hamas, has now at points accepted the 1967 borders. But you can look at this, this is a terrorist organization, like all of that, that's fair, okay? But this is pretty clear, you don't have a partner for peace on the other side either. And there is such a fantasy version of Israeli politics that gets articulated by American politicians and American press. Mm. This is not a surprise. This has been Netanyahu's goal for years and years and years. He stated it plainly. Um, The continued expansion of settlements in the West Bank. Just ask that settler that Isaac Chotner interviewed um, that we covered here in the show. And she said, yeah, the settlements are because we don't want a Palestinian state. And she goes on to say, it's very simple to understand. 
it is very simple to understand because the more you expand those illegal settlements, the more impossible it makes it to ever envision a Palestinian state. The more you build up Hamas and the more you keep the Gaza Strip and the West Bank separate, the more that you make it impossible to have a Palestinian state. That has always been the goal of Netanyahu. That has always been the goal, uh, even more so, of his coalitional partners who are, you know, in a lot of ways, this is something that uh, Daryl Cooper of Martyr Maid yes, says. Yes, yes. The, the right wing of Israeli politics has always been more honest, mm -hmm. honestly, than the left wing or liberal part of Israeli politics. They're very upfront about this as a settler, settler colonial project. The very upfront about, you know, what we ultimately want to see is Gazans dispelled from the Strip and a final solution for us to take back all the land. They're quite upfront about their goals. And here in the U.S., American politicians just like put their thumbs in their ears and pretend like they're not hearing it and pretend we still live in this like fantasy land of the Oslo Accords and a quote unquote peace process. Yeah. So that's actually I think the big problem a, is most Americans, as usual, have a Disney-fied version of basically anything that goes on abroad. Yeah, if you want to look to what's going on in Israel, maybe you should ask people who live in Israel. If you actually want to go to Israel, you maybe shouldn't go on an APAC guided tour <laughs> or your birthright. It's, sorry to break it to you, just going on birthright doesn't mean you actually know that much. You probably should spend some time there. Now, I have, I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I you know, spent a decent amount of time and I actually know people who live there and also have spoken to a pretty wide array. And then also you look to people who have spent years and years of their life. And you can, what quickly emerges is a very dynamic, complex, politically very split, even religiously split in many cases, and ethnically split society, which is why it is always so difficult to describe Israel like as a single polity. It's both a Jewish state, it's a sovereign state, it's, you know, it's an economic miracle, but it's also a security like nightmare, at least for the United States and for the Israeli people. So to break it down really is, I think this is what Daryl also brings out from the Martyr Maid podcast, is he's like, look, the biggest issue is that you have these very small factions of the Israeli right and of the Palestinian right, who have always at every turn resorted to violence at critical moments to derail the peace process and inflame the tensions. And that is a deeply unfortunate reality. And it reminds you of the power of these single incendiary, you know, even fringe er eras of society, which are able to use this violence to then flare things up to a level where they make it politically impossible. You can also read the Hamas attacks uh, in, in that same vein, which is Hamas and the Palestinians were realizing, and the PA, everybody was open and honest about this, that the Abraham Accords and the normalization of relations between the Gulf Arab states and Israel was an existential threat because it meant that the Arab states would no longer even pretend that Palestinian statehood was a political priority for them. Mm -hmm. So what did they do? They carried out this heinous political attack. They inflamed the tensions of the Gulf monarchies and of the actual populations, which are way more pro-Palestine. And let's be real, pro-terrorists than the actual Gulf monarchs. And so now the monarchs are stuck in a place where they're like, we can't normalize relations. Our people hate you. And so to have them in a scenario where they're normalizing relations and there's like bilateral agreements and all that stuff, not even just in secret, but out in the open, impossible now, probably for a generation at this point. So you have to always remember like what the meta context of this is, and that's where moving towards a Palestinian statehood, and at least if you wanted to make that the goal, I think you would conduct your military operation very, very differently. And same with the U.S., 
part of why we are just stuck in such a rock and a hard place between our domestic political support for Israel and the geopolitical reality of what the future on the ground there is going to look like. You can't lock people in a cage for decades and think there's not going to be some sort of response. And there have been attempts at, you know, everybody always said, oh, where's the nonviolent Palestinian resistance? I mean, there have been real attempts at that, the Great March of Return um, that happened that was met with, you know, sniper fire and people being killed and massacred and their legs shot. That was a genuine grassroots attempt in Gaza at nonviolent resistance. And so you can't think that you're going to lock people in an, what has been described by many as an open-air prison and what has been described by some as a concentration camp and think that there's not going to be a response. Now, as to the U.S., and I do want to get to the, the immediate news here in a minute— mm-hmm. Biden likes to feign, you know, they're leaking to the press. Oh, they're really trying behind the scenes. Like he's really pressing BB and he's giving them a hard time about X and Y and Z and trying to push more aid and et cetera, et cetera. This leak also reveals that any sort of gains that have been made here in terms of the hostage yield and the temporary ceasefire, this didn't have anything to do with us. This mm. was all because of domestic political yeah, pressure and the grassroots movement and the energy of the families of the hostages and the pressure that they applied from day one saying, hey, my family members are in Gaza and we have to bring them home. That's what he was responding to. And then the other piece of this is, you know, all this feigned uh, impotence. Like, oh, well, we asked him really nicely. Like, we're really trying behind the scenes. Yeah, but you're not willing to do the one thing that would matter, which is to say, no, you're not getting our weapons. You're not getting our money. We are going to, you know, we're not going to provide you endless diplomatic cover at the UN unless you conduct this operation in a way that is consistent with trying to achieve Palestinian statehood and with trying to achieve the minimal amount of civilian casualties possible. But, you know, instead, the uh, not just the words, but the deeds have been no red lines and unconditional support. The Intercept had a piece about how we lifted all the restrictions on our weapons stockpile. There's normally a process that involves, you know, real supposed careful determination of what, what weapons goes to whom, trying to ensure that they're not going to be used against civilians. All of that completely lifted in this conflict. Let me go ahead and get to the the very latest in the news. Um, As I mentioned now a couple times, there has been, put this up on the screen, a two-day extension of the ceasefire as additional hostages are released. Qatar said mediators had secured that deal to prolong the temporary truce um, by two days. The U.S. is welcoming that extension and said it would like to see the pauses extended further beyond the additional two days. You guys will probably remember the deal here. It was initially 50 hostages for 150 Palestinians who were being held in Israeli prisons. Um, For every additional 10 hostages that Hamas was able to locate and release, they were going to extend the pause for an additional day. Uh, The hostages, they go on to say here, releases have received near wall-to-wall media coverage inside of Israel, while thousands of Palestinians have gathered each evening outside of Ofer prison between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, letting off firecrackers to celebrate the prisoners' release and bolstering Hamas's political standing. So this is the absolute focus of attention Mm -hmm. right now in Israel. Um, But again, to this question, I mean, the the U.S. is getting a little uncomfortable, you might say, with the uh, level of civilian death and atrocities that have been committed here. And so there's a push for let's extend the ceasefire as long as possible. But the Israelis are very clear that this is not the end of their bombing campaign. Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, go ahead and put this up on the screen, 
says that um, it will be bigger, the fighting when it resumes will be bigger and take place around the Gaza Strip. Quote, the enemy will meet first the bombs of the Air Force and after the shells of the tanks and the artillery and the scoops of the D-9 bulldozers and finally gunfire of the infantry troops, we will fight in the entire Strip. So, of course, the initial uh, bombing campaign was throughout the entire Strip, but concentrated on the northern part of Gaza, which has now been effectively completely destroyed and rendered uninhabitable. People were told to flee to the south. They're now being told to move to, like, what is a very small part of the south for this um, expansion, uh, planned expansion of the bombing campaign. As they've now said, oh, Hamas leaders have moved to the southern part of the Strip and located in Khan Yunus. So that is the plan for the military Mm -hmm. campaign going forward. Effectively, no end in sight as far as they're concerned. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this just kind of brings us back to what we're talking about in terms of the political realities of the future. If we can put the next part, please, up on the screen. Can the Palestinian Authority really govern Gaza after the war? This was written by Stephen Erlinger. He's a fantastic reporter. I've followed him for many, many years. He's a foreign correspondent, currently working over at the New York Times. But what I think he hits on correctly is that Abbas, the PA, have never had less political legitimacy than at this time. That the over the goal from 2005 onward to establish the PA as a legitimate governing authority, mostly propped up by the United States and the international community, not really by the actual Palestinian people, and then you know docilely accepted ish by the Israeli government, has actually made it so that the entire generation that's grown up under them feels as if they are not advocating for their interests and are instead either puppets or props of the West and or, or docile companions yeah. of the Israelis, which I can understand. I, I was going to say, I don't think they just feel that way. Um, I think that is the reality. I, uh, <laughs> I'm only describing uh, how, how they would put it in the kindest possible way. The problem, you know, and this was the dream really of Oslo to have legitimate political representation and then the falling apart of that dream 2005 really onward has made it so that the U.S. dream of simply installing some sort of PA government over the Gaza Strip really bears any question of whether the population would accept it because many of the Gazans who now have been through this horrific ordeal and while they may not support Hamas, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of indication um, about Hamas support and all of that, that it's not nearly as ironclad as everybody says. You Correct. know, everyone's like, oh, well, they voted them in 17 years ago. I'm like, yeah, well, it's been 17 years and they've also been rife with corruption. They've siphoned off aid for themselves. They've enriched themselves to the tunes of millions of dollars and built all of these tunnels. The population, arguably, nobody has suffered more than the actual Gazans who have lived under Hamas rule, many of whom are not fundamentalist Islamic, te- you know, they're not fundamental fundamentalist Muslims either. This is a very, very different population. So put that, all of that aside, they are, and any any uh, sovereign nation wants legitimate political representation. Yeah. And that is just where the big question of what can operationalize the wants and the needs and the desires of these 2.2 million, which is acceptable to them and also acceptable to the international community? And that is, it just does not appear to be what the Palestinian Authority is. And then you run into the same Iraq problem where any authority which is deemed acceptable to the West and or to Israel is automatically seen as a puppet that will have no actual governance capability. And then people either don't show up to the elections or they support you know, Islamic terrorism like the Sunnis did in Iraq and they had no legitimacy in terms of the Iraqi elections. And then 
the only legitimately elected Iraqi leaders end up being people who are hopelessly corrupt and can only stay in power by giving the finger to America, even though they're ones who are pay all of their bills. We ran into this in Karzai, with Karzai in Afghanistan and his eventual successors. We ran into this over every, basically every person who ruled over Iraq all the way up until yeah. today. I think we're running into the same problem right now yeah, um, I mean, with Palestine. Uh, the PA basically cooperates with the Israeli yeah. security. And so in West in the West Bank, where you have you know repeated settler incursions and violence pushing Palestinians off their land, and the people who are supposed to represent there are nowhere in sight to protect them from this. Like, of course, how are they, how are they gonna feel about that? And so you do have this dichotomy of you'll see some polls that are like, oh, Palestinians overwhelmingly support Hamas. And then you'll see other indications as you're pointing to, Saga, that's like, actually, no, they're very frustrated with Hamas because of their failures of governance and just like basic, you know, ability to live your life and, you know, be able to get food and a job for your family, et cetera. Well, those are basically their only two political options, putting aside a lot of smaller parties. So you've got either Fatah, which is, you know, PA and is effectively an Israeli collaborator, or you've got Hamas. I thought this article was really interesting because they actually talked to Palestinians about mm -hmm. how they view the political situation. Um, they spoke with a, a housewife, a 30-year-old housewife from Ramallah, that's in the West Bank, asked if the P Palestinian Authority could run Gaza. She said, absolutely not. The PA is just sitting, she said, with many years without elections. The one who does for the people should be in charge of the people, she added, referring to Hamas. Um, they also talked about, you know, the reason that Hamas gained support. Because if you look at, you know, support for violent resistance versus, you know, more moderate forces throughout uh, Palestinian history, what you see is when peace is being negotiated and it's a legitimate possibility, you see support for the armed violent resistance plummet when there's an actual prospect of real peace. So uh, this article points out the failure to reach a negotiated peace has made the other obvious alternative, that of armed Palestinian resistance to Israeli occupation, more acceptable and popular. Go on to quote a moderate Palestinian who is the president of Al-Quds University. From the Palestinian point of view, he said October 7th looked like a miracle. This fortress Israel suddenly seemed vulnerable. This um, professor goes on to say that he abhors the violence that was perpetrated but was clear about the impact. Who is Palestinian leadership now? It's Hamas, like it or not. At the moment, Hamas is seen by Palestinians as the foremost representative of Palestinian interests. And why? Because no one else is. The PA does not figure in people's minds. Um, another prominent Palestinian pollster said in his latest survey, not yet published, 66% of Palestinians in the West Bank regard the PA as a burden. Mm. These are the people that we want to put in charge of everybody. Right. Everyone already hates them. Some 85% want Mahmoud Abbas, who is the head, to resign. And that means more than 60% of his own rank and file in Fatah want him to go. Um, so what they're saying is that one of the only possible, like potential political solutions would be an agreement to disarm Hamas mm -hmm. and actually bring them in as part of a more legitimate governing coalition because the PA has no legitimate legitimacy whatsoever. And that's all that is left. And in fact, if you put this next piece up on the screen, um, there are Arab leaders who are trying right now to get Hamas to lay down their arms. Um, they are saying like, listen, you stand no chance. You may as well lay down your arms now before they are destroyed, uh, before you are destroyed. And they also suggested that should Hamas disarm, they could join the leadership of the PLO as a purely political party. So this is an active conversation. Um, there's one other piece, Sagar, that I wanna mention before I get your reaction to all of this, which is, you know, a lot of people say, oh, who could be the, um, you know, who could be the head 
who has legitimacy among the Palestinian people, who's a possible uh, leader here. And the person that I keep seeing brought up is Marwan Barghouti, who is right now being held in Israeli uh, prison because of his involvement with the Second Intifada. But this is someone who has, unlike Mahmoud Abbas, um, he is not Hamas, and he has widespread support and legitimacy among the Palestinian people. So if you're actually serious about a potential you know, post-war government, he would seem like a logical potential choice. The problem with all this is it makes sense on paper. And if you were to ask me how this will eventually end up decades from now, it'll probably look like this. The issue is that through all of human history, it's the bitterest pill on earth to swallow, to look a man in the face who's tried to kill you and who ordered people who you know's death. And the only really way to get there is a ton more death. And I, I don't condone it, but... That's honestly, that's the reality. For the Israelis to accept something like that, they are going to have to go through a brutal occupation regime. They're going to have to exhaust every other well, we possibility. Would have to effectively force it. We, yeah, we a we would have even if we force it. I'm not sure they could accept it at this current moment, or even in the next year, or even two years. The memories of October 7th are just going to be too uh, too big to swallow. But 20 years from now, in the same way the U.S. commanders who spent their entire careers trying to kill the Taliban eventually found. I mean, imagine you know an insane situation where you have the commander of CENTCOM whose entire job was to kill Taliban, then on the phone with the Taliban negotiating an exit from Kabul. That's a surreal moment, but honestly, that's mostly how those things end up. Even in the First World War, if you ever look at any sort of negotiated solution where you don't have unconditional surrender, it just takes like millions and millions of people to die for people to even entertain the possibility of sitting across from people who have uh, tried to kill you in the past. Uh, obviously, that's really unfortunate. I, uh, however, though, in the same way that those uh, those conflicts were easily foreseen as how they would eventually end up, this one also just seems very, very obvious to me. It just seems that politically it's going to be incredibly difficult. It would take America to force it, and it would take Israel honestly suffering a tremendous loss, either in soldiers or in economic costs, and possibly both, before they could entertain it. And, of course, Netanyahu would have to be long, long gone yeah. before you could get to it, which is part of why I think it's you know it's even worse because you just know um, how much of a Gordian knot that this is going to remain. And around, I think, all of international politics for honestly decades, decades to come. Well, I it's don't also, see how it can end. I, I, yeah. Unfortunately, I agree with you yeah. that it seems impossible to imagine yeah. that out of this we actually happen. get a peace problem, we actually right. get a two-state solution and you know rights for Palestinians. But there's also no doubt in my mind that even if you're just if even if you just care about security for Israelis, that's the direction yeah. things should go in. Because you can't keep pe keep people locked up. You know, you can't keep them uh, in this apartheid system in the West Bank with settler violence and continued incursions on their land. You can't keep the indefinite blockade. You can't keep destroying them and mowing them, mowing the grass in these horrific wars and think that this is going to provide peace and security for your own people. Um, at the same time, there's new reporting about uh, internal dissent within the White House about the way that they have provided unconditional support to Israel, uh, both publicly and through their actions, as we were saying before. This was a really interesting uh, and revealing piece of reporting. Put this up on the screen from the Washington Post. They start off by talking about how earlier this month, a group of about 20 distressed White House staffers requested a meeting with Biden's top advisors. The diverse group had three main issues they wanted to discuss, and this was with White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients, Senior Advisor Anita Dunn, Je Deputy National Security Advisor John Finer, 
They wanted to know the administration's strategy for curbing the number of civilian deaths, the message it plans to send on the conflict, and its post-war vision for the region. The aides, they say, listen respectfully, but participants felt that they fell back on familiar talking points and basically did nothing to alleviate their concerns in this private meeting. Um, there's some interesting details here about why Biden has gone in the direction that he's gone, and it harkens back to what Bibi was saying about, hey, I've known this guy for 40 years. I can control him. Don't worry about it. That's why you got to keep me in place. Biden went and visited Israel back in 1973 um, and met with then Prime Minister Golda Meir. And at the time, you know, Israel was a very different state politically. It was basically left-leaning. It was, you know, much less of a sort of military behemoth um, as than it is now. Now it is this incredibly right-wing state um, with, the, you know, the occupation more vicious and brutal than it's ever been. But he still has this, like, nostalgic view of his trip there and meeting with Golda Meir. So that's part of, I mean, it's classic Biden, yes. right? That's part of why. I'm laughing, but it's its not funny. Yeah, right. Yeah. He has not updated his view since 1973 mm -hmm. is basically the view that you come away with. Um, Biden aides are admitting that this is kind of a disaster. The division inside the White House is to some degree between Biden's senior longtime aides, they say, and an array of younger staffers of diverse backgrounds. But even top advisors say they recognize the conflict has hurt America's global standing. Quote, we are taking on a lot of water on Israel's behalf. So even the people who are most inclined to back Biden's um, support of this war on Gaza, even they know this has been really bad for yes. us. And there's one other piece here that I wanted to lay out that got a lot of attention. You guys might remember um, Biden called into question the death counts coming out of Gaza and, you know, really trying to undermine the idea that there has been just mass civilian death um, in this indiscriminate bombing campaign, including 70 percent women and children who have been killed here. Apparently, he has, they say, at times wrestled with his own emotions regarding the war on October 25th, he voiced skepticism about that Gaza death toll. He says, I have no notion about the about that the Palestinians are telling the truth about how many people are killed. The very next day, Biden met with five prominent Muslim Americans who protested what they saw as his insensitivity to the civilians who were dying. All spoke of people they knew who had been affected by the suffering in Gaza, including a woman who had lost 100 members of her family. Um, and he appeared to be affected by their account. He said, I'm sorry, I'm disappointed in myself. He told the group, according to two people familiar with the meeting, I will do better. Meeting was supposed to be 30 minutes, ended up lasting for an hour. So even behind the scenes, even he admitted hmm. that he was wrong to call into question the um, rate of civilian death that is unfolding in Gaza. Well, I mean, the thing is, is instead of uh, trusting the Gaza Health Ministry or any of that, it, we have just looked to what Israeli sources are saying. And the Israelis are like, yeah, it's between 10 to 20,000. That's yeah. what the Israeli military says. Right. So even if you don't believe them, you should believe um, the others. I And you know, my thing is, I instinctually am in a distrust most of what is put out by either of these parties. But one of the things that uh, reporting-wise was Ryan Grimm just going and checking the names of people who were claimed dead yeah. and then going, I think that's actually a journalistic possibility. Right. And the uh, other thing not you sure why at, more people hadn't looked into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've got, leave it to Ryan to just be like, check let me name. just actually yeah. check. Oh, yeah. turns out it was accurate. If yeah. anything, it was understating the deaths. Um, yeah, and you can also look at past conflicts where the same Gaza Health Ministry uh, right. run by Hamas was accurate, more right. or less, in, in their counts. So, you know, we have history to judge by. So in any case, it shows you that even within the White House, despite their bluster and their continued insistence on, like, staying the course with unconditional support, even the people 
who most support this direction know that in terms of world standing and in terms of the politics, it's been an utter disaster. Yep. Well, uh, you know, uh, referencing earlier book uh, that I had had here and the work of John Mearsheimer, he called all of this a long, long time ago. I, he's actually done a couple of podcasts working on trying to get it. Yeah, we'd like here. to have I really have would him like to sure. have him sit with him because he was a, a big, a big influence on my thinking around this subject and has basically on every subject for a long time. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So at the same time, we wanted to give you an update out of Vermont. Uh, you may have been following the story already. Put this up on the screen. A suspect, a suspect has been arrested in the shooting of three men of Palestinian descent. This occurred near the University of Vermont. Uh, that suspect has already now pled not guilty to the shooting. Two of the victims here are in stable condition. The third is being treated for more serious injuries. Uh, the suspect who was arrested is named Jason Eaton. He is 48 years old made his initial court appearance. This is now being investigated as a hate crime. Um, the FBI and the uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives are assisting Vermont authorities in that investigation. And basically what happened here is these three men who are from Palestine, um, from the West Bank, they were actually out walking in Burlington. Um, they were going to one of their grandmother's house for Thanksgiving dinner. They'd gone bowling. They were just coming back. Two of them were wearing the kafia scarves. Mm -hmm. 
um, which are synonymous with Palestine and with the, the Palestinian um, liberation struggle as well. So they were easily identifiable as Palestinian or Arab. They were speaking, they said, a mix of sort of Arab and English. And um, this person came out and shot them. Yeah. Uh, we now have a little bit of details about, I mean, you know, everybody goes and scrapes the social media accounts to see what right. they can figure out about who this person is and what, you know, what possible motive you could potentially discern here from their actions. Put this up on the screen. In a now locked account on X, uh, Jason Eaton described himself as a radical citizen who patrols democracy, misspelled with a K, and capitalism <laughs> for oath creepers. His banner image features bold text saying, libertarians want trans furries to be able to protect their cannabis farms with unregistered machine guns. <laughs> okay, I don't know what to make of any of that. Uh, his archive posts are apparently a little more moderated. Um, he's got a lot of criticism of the IRS and the Fed, describes himself as a libertarian, expresses support for both Democratic and Republican lawmakers. He also had a substack. Oh. Um, the one that remains up there is apparently some long dissertation on how restaurants can keep dishwashers employed. Mm. Uh, but there were a lot of previous substack posts that were apparently deleted. Some of them were uh, anti-vax. There was one that was titled Thought Crime that um, Vice describes as an anti-vax screed that labels COVID-19 as a government conspiracy. The scale and the scope of this operation was next level, he wrote. Uh, they also were able, the Daily Beast was able to talk to his mother. And there were a lot of headlines that were all about like, oh, his mom says mm -hmm. he's a great guy, which was, you know, not a great way to lead these pieces. But anyway, uh, she said they just spent Thanksgiving together, saw nothing amiss with her son, made no reference to the Israel-Hamas conflict, um, which has, of course, been sharply polarizing. But she did say that he had struggles with mental health in the past and described him as a, quote, very religious person who regularly reads the Bible and finds connection to various religious figures. Yeah. So that's kind of everything we know at this point. That's what we know. I mean, we don't yet have a motive uh, that has been really released by Burlington PD. Uh, really what struck out to me, Crystal, is everything about this, and we were actually finally talking about this before the show, anytime you're in a position like this, you're kind of a magnet for schizophrenia. I can't tell you how many times I've received you know, like scribbled dossiers in the mail and other things with delusions of connections. And you know, I've seen it all from QAnon to others. And really what stuck out to me was this quote, religiously reads the Bible and finds connections to various religious figures. Nothing wrong with that per se, but it's also a textbook symptom of schizophrenic or schizophrenia type behavior. Especially when feel, mom says he's got Exactly, when issues. the mom says you have mental health issues, maybe he's been undiagnosed, but belief in conspiracy, the uh, ramblings, unable to hold a job, if he you know indicates he was a dishwasher and the best way to treat them. These are exactly the type of people who float he, he at the was actually, society. He was actually a like, financial consultant in some mm -hmm. way, and so he was giving advice to business owners oh, in that Substack post. He wasn't coming oh. from like the perspective of the dishwash. I don't know. I, don't I didn't know. read the I, post. That's just how it was characterized yeah. in this piece. But, you know, when you have three men, college students, mm -hmm. who, two of whom are wearing the keffiyeh, just walking down the street, talking to each other, going to grandma's house for Thanksgiving, and someone comes out and, you know, wantonly tries to kill them. Of course, this is going to raise questions about whether this was a targeted hate yes. crime because of their race and because of their uh, religion. So right. that's what it's being investigated as, and that's effectively what we know about it at this that's point. Right. And that's thank goodness they're all three alive, although, as I said, one of them is in really serious condition. One of them is in serious condition. Uh, yeah, and we'll bear out the investigation. It's what we said yesterday, by the way, is, uh, you know, with all these things, it's probably just better to wait for information and to 
characterize it responsibly rather than just rushing to judgment, unlike uh, Fox News uh, mm-hmm. with their Canadian terrorist attack uh, that ended up just being a high-speed car crash. Let's move on um, to the economy. There's a lot going on in the world, uh, not only of inflation, of grocery prices and all of that, but of course around the election because how people feel about the economy is usually the single biggest determinant of how they will eventually end up voting and or not voting. So for President Biden, the economy remains a problem. What have they done uh, for that? Have they instituted policies or spent a lot of time talking and thinking about it? Uh, No. Instead, there is a new, uh, it seems, effort. Let's put this up there on the screen. Actually reported by our friend uh, Jeff Stein, where in response to a viral $16 McDonald's meal um, that is explaining voter anger at Biden, they say a White House official says the administration is now working with TikTok creators to tell positive stories of Biden's economic stewardship while also working with the social media platforms to, quote, counter misinformation. Um, And so anytime we see government working with social media platforms to counter misinformation, we, of course, have to ask, uh, what is misinformation? And it brings me back to Ken Klippenstein's report about the Department of Misinformation within the DHS, where they would both they would try and label in the same bucket of misinformation stuff about um, COVID having microchips at, with criticism of the Afghan withdrawal. And you're like, well, hold on a second here. Uh, one of those may be misinformation. The other one is a legitimate political critique. And having watched now the viral TikTok uh, with you, Crystal, what are they? What does the guy say? He goes, "Can you believe this? Here's my receipt of McDonald's. Right. Here's a burger, a soda." And some fries that cost me $16. Where is the misinformation in that? Right. Nothing. And in fact, you know, I see these sometimes too, just because I'm, I also, I guess this is where my mind goes around like uh, egg prices in the grocery store. That's not misinformation. And when people make reels or TikToks or whatever about them, it's because they feel as I do when, have you ever seen eggs that cost $10 before in your whole life? I just saw it yesterday. $10.92 is burned into my memory. They're pasture raised eggs, to be fair, they're the most expensive whatever ones fan- on the shelf. Eggs. But I'm skipping them. I'm like, no way. I'm not paying $11 for 12 eggs. That's almost a dollar an egg. That's insane. I mean, the cheaper ones were like four bucks, I think, something like that. Mm -hmm. And the same thing. I mean, look, I I understand that prices can go up, you know, over time, but we're talking about in the rapid, in a rapid period of three years, you saw year-over-year inflation come to like 40, 50, 60% in the case of some goods, especially whenever it comes to staples like beef um, and, uh, yeah, especially like beef, eggs, and then, um, many other animal-based products, which for a variety of supply-based constraint reasons and inflation and all of that have just gone way up, combined with restaurant bills, which have skyrocketed from both the input costs going up and labor. So the point of all of this is to say, it's not misinformation, it's a real concern. And actually, uh, just to show you what I guess they're trying to push back against, there was a TikTok um, that went very viral of a uh, nurse who's living in Pennsylvania who described, I think, of what a lot of Americans are feeling currently at this moment, which is why it touched a lot of people. Here's what she had to say. I feel like my husband and I are doing everything right. We both have good jobs. I'm a nurse. I'm a registered nurse. I work full-time. He works full-time. We just got paid this past Friday, right? We paid the mortgage. Bought some groceries, put some gas in the car. And guys, it is Tuesday. 
And we have like two or three hundred dollars to last us until next Friday. I don't I don't know what to do. Like I'm in school full time. I work full time. He works more than full time. He works overtime every week. This isn't how it's supposed to be. You know, growing up we were told, you know, go to college, get a degree, work to support your family. Here we are. Did that. Now what? I feel a lot of sympathy for her because, you know, let's think about some of the line items in this woman's budget. She's talking about mortgage. Now, she lives in Pennsylvania. It's not even a particularly expensive state, at least if you compare it to other people in the East Coast. I just looked it up. Gas there is $3.56 a gallon on average, which is quite high. It's on the higher end um, for the United States. Then, really, what did she mention? She mentioned her schooling. And I think why that hits a nerve is she probably works in one of the best industries that you can work in in the United States states. Nursing. Nursing, there's a shortage of nurses right now. They get paid all kinds of money. And what she's talking about is, I'm going to assume on her part, her and her husband, a two, you know, six-figure income, two working adults. And I think it just bears really out the entire two-income trap from that we Elizabeth Warren wrote about mm-hmm. a long time ago, but of runaway inflation cost for housing, for schooling, and then food. And you put those three cores of society together and you get a breaking point of like what that woman felt like. And again, why it went off and took viral is I just think millions of people feel exactly the same. And, you know, it's not right. It's not like she doesn't look like a profligate spent. Look, we don't know her financial situation. Right. But if what she's saying is true and she's just, you know, those are the major line items in there, I'm just going to have to assume schooling is taking out a ton of that. And that's wrong. It's not supposed to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you put the current inflation aside, School, healthcare, mm-hmm. housing, and kids I have she, yeah. skyrocketed in costs, and those are like the basic bedrocks mm-hmm. of feeling like you have a stable, potentially middle class life. And so, yeah, people are stretched incredibly thin. And even if she's lying and she's acting and this isn't true or whatever, even if this is technically fake news, you can just go and look and look at the statistics. And know that there are millions and millions of Americans who are working two jobs or a husband and a wife are both working and they're trying to raise the kids and they're trying to do everything right. And they're still barely making it paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, to get back to Jeff Stein's piece about the $16 McDonald's meal and the White House effort to combat misinformation about the economy, Mm. et cetera, et cetera, it really gets to this core debate of like, are Americans, how, what is the reality of the economy? Are Americans being influenced by social media to think it's really bad? Or is there something real here? And if you just look at the course of the Biden administration, and I've said this a million times, but let me just say it again. The beginning, some relief gets passed for COVID. If you look at the statistics in terms of during the COVID period, when you had this much larger social safety net that was erected and you had child tax credits going out and you had direct checks going out, you had beefed up unemployment insurance, et cetera, guess what? Those things really helped people. Um, the student loan debt pause, those things really, really helped people. And the story of the Biden administration has been deconstructing all of that social safety net. So is it any wonder then that people then look and say, I'm doing worse off now? Of course you are. Because all of the things that were helping you and that were bolstering your income and giving you a little bit extra in your savings account, all of those things are gone. And in addition, prices have gotten much higher. So 
to me, I'm like, it's no mystery. And I'm sure you can find things that are inaccurate that are being told online about mm. the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a reason why people feel the way they do. And it's not because they're crazy or because they are brainwashed. And in fact, you know, we have this piece that we can show you of yep. some of the numbers here. Americans are getting very close to maxing out their credit cards. Because this is one of the mysteries is people say, oh, well, we know that they're really like, they're lying about the economy mm -hmm. or they're fooled about the economy because they're still spending a lot of money. Well, perhaps this will help you solve the mystery. They're racking up a lot of debt to continue to spend that money. American borrowers are getting closer to maxing out. This is per the Wall Street Journal. Um, they say all of this highlights that some American spending habits might not be sustainable, at least when it comes to their credit cards. Some people might be starting to consume more of their available credit from month to month, could hit the wall once those lines are exhausted. Recent note published by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston found that as of July, Consumers with annual household incomes of less than 50K whose accounts were delinquent were on average utilizing 80 to 90% of their available credit. Of course, that leaves them with a tiny cushion and across all cardholder income groups as of July, the ratio of outstanding card account balance to the account's credit limit was, way, was above February 2020 levels. So you have this indication that people are having to use more of their available credit and effectively max out their credit cards to be able to maintain what they have been doing over this time period. Yes, exactly. And that just means more keeping up with the Joneses and then more feeling like that, paying the minimums and feeling perpetually like Well, it may not even be keeping up with doing. the Joneses, just being able to keep up. I think keep it's ahead above the water. It's probably a mixture it, well, depending on the income strata that we're looking at here. If you're a hundred K and you're starting to lose a lot uh, use a lot more, although I you know I'm a assuming that the two, a nurse and somebody else who's working more than full time is probably making somewhere in that range. Whenever you start to feel like that and the walls close in, that's whenever you make desperate decisions. And that's really whenever you can make life-changing financial decisions that will have a massive impact on you for decades to come. This is always my, big, my biggest beef with student debt. Most of these people have no idea what they're even signing up for. And many of their parents are, you know, didn't experience the same cost. And so emotionally can't really understand what it means to have 25 years of debt hanging over you. Well, and you're told, uh, like, this is the way to do it. Yes, Like, this I, I is get the it. path uh, to your, you know, to you making it and being in the middle class. I don't blame house anybody involved except for the government and the, the debt purveyors. Yeah. So it's like not the actual uh, people taking it out. Although a lot of people do like to switch that. The overall lesson of this, though, is that when you're getting closer and closer to maxing out is you eventually do face some sort of penalty. And so the way the Wall Street Journal posts this is like, oh, it could be good for retailers because it's like, yeah, in the short term, but what about six months from now? What about a year from now? Like whenever you're maxed to the max, what are you going to do? Maybe you're not going to get any more credit. What about next holiday season? And look, I'm not naive. I know in America, eventually, you know, things usually move around and a full-blown collapse and all that stuff. But every piece that you look at at a consumer level, the government is like, you're doing better off than ever. Everyone just uh, yesterday was talk making fun of Americans for feeling bad because yesterday, uh, su Sunday, was the biggest travel day in the history of the United States, according to TSA. Mm. Well, it's as if they haven't heard of putting a flight on a credit card. Right. Just because, you know, it just maybe they spent three years locked at home and you have a relative across the country. I actually met some people like this when I was in San Diego for Thanksgiving. And they were like, you know what? Now's the time. Uh, and it's not necessarily because you have the money. It's because you've been separated from your relatives or your family or you wanted to go do something for so long until you decide that now is the appropriate time. Money can be a constraint, but don't forget also about the trauma that I think a lot of Americans have been through over the last couple of years. So long way of saying uh, it's not misinformation, White House. It's an actual economic problem. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's move on to the next part here, a topic I know so many of you are so interested in. Let's put this, please, up there on the screen. An indication at the very basic level, and a lot of what we'll actually talk about today, about economic feeling and others, is housing. And the housing market right now is just the worst of all worlds. You have high prices and high interest rates. You have also a feeling for a lot of people of being trapped because home sales have now fallen to a 13-year low in October, the lowest, you know, since 2011. And from these economic forecasts, what you're seeing is that while there has been a slight dip in price, high rates have predominantly had the effect not of pushing down prices, but instead of locking homeowners in to where they currently are and refusing to move. This has a lot of issues. One, if you are in the entry of the housing market, there's probably never been a worse time to try and buy a house with a high high interest rate and with a high price. Two, so you decide to rent a couple more years than you would have in the past when you had 
if you had the down payment and the ability to buy. Well, what does that do? That causes rent inflation to continue to go up. And lo and behold, every single time you look at the CPI, rent and housing inflation remains one of the top drivers of the overall consumer uh, price index. So the housing you know, crunch both at a price level in terms of the inability to sell and then the massive pressure on the rental market combined with, if you're a developer right now, why are we building a house exactly if I can't sell it and if I you know, have to pay 8% interest on my construction loan? So you have a supply crunch, a rent crunch, and a housing crunch all wrapped in to the same time. I honestly think this is like on par with this 1970s you know, level stagflation where at that point it was unemployment that was getting all the attention. But here housing just floats under the rug. People, people just yeah. don't talk about it as much. And yet we have seen a tremendous amount of audience interest because I think this is probably at the top of so many of your heads, especially if you're younger. You know, for a lot of the boomers, they've got what they need. But, you know, and I guess that's why cable news and others would ignore it. And if you're rich, you know, none of this really applies to you. But if you are even upper middle class or lower, you're having a tough time out there right now trying to buy a house, especially with average home price in a major metro area has crossed half a million dollars. I'll never forget that poll that we looked at that was like people were praying for a housing crash because they were like, how else am I ever going to afford a house? And instead, you've had the worst of all worlds. Mortgage rates have gone Mm -hmm. way up and housing prices have still gone up. And so, yeah, the the market is just completely frozen. Um, Rents are still wildly expensive and people just feel like I will never be able to make it. This will never be sustainable. I will never be able to be in like a stable position as a homeowner building something. And that's why I put this next piece up on the screen. You have so many people saying in a new Wall Street Journal poll, that the American dream is dead. It's slipping out of reach. Fewer people believe that anyone who works hard can get ahead. Only 36% of voters in this poll say that the American dream still holds true. That is way fewer than the 53% majority who said that just back in 2012 and the 48% who said it back in 2016 in similar surveys asked by a different pollster. There was also a Wall Street Journal poll last year that asked whether people who work hard were likely to get ahead, and some 68% actually said yes, nearly twice the share as in this American Dream poll. Now, those are slightly different questions, but it shows you still there has been a deterioration even in the past year. Um, The American Dream, they say, seemed most remote to young adults and women. Some 46% of men were actually like, okay, yeah, American Dream's still real. Only 28% of women said Mm. the ideal of advancement for hard work still holds true, as did 48% of voters age 65 or older, but only 28% of those under age 50. And I would be curious to see, you know, under age 30, what are those numbers? I bet it's even lower than 28% who feel like the American dream is still even a possibility. Yeah, so to have it just flip completely in the span of uh, not even a single generation, but really uh, in a decade is one of the more profound economic uh, stories of all American history. There have been very few as transformative times as we're in right now. Uh, This is on par with the great, really, I think, extension of the Great Recession and the attendant like social fallout. We had the Great Depression, which is really the only other previous time in modern industrial society that we've seen 
anything like this. And we instead don't, we try to pretend and, you know, we, we live with the day-to-day. And of course, you know, we're talking about Israel and open AI in Ireland and all this other stuff. But this is by and large the single biggest determinant of how you're going to live your life. How are you going to get a job? Whether you're able to get married, what it actually looks like, what your prospects are to the future. If you have and want to even work to anything in the future or uh, like why you would even choose to go into debt to get some schooling, you only do that if you think that you're gonna come out better on the other side. And the same holds true for really any investment that you're gonna make. So nihilism has a really downstream, terrible impact economically, and then of course, on a personal and life level, it's just a t- it's an awful way to live. And the way that that comes out in politics is the primal screams. You have Trump, you have Bernie, you have all these like a flash in the pan moments, the establishment panics, it tries to co-opt and all of that. But I think at this point, they have failed so dramatically to grapple all the way from 2001 onward that they don't deserve a single ounce of trust anymore. And it's really a generational gap between uh, people who are our age, Crystal, and the people who are 25, 30 years older who can remember the 1990s, who were adults at that time, and who were living large. Whereas for the rest of us, that's a distant memory. It's like something that exists in the past. I've been rewatching Friends recently. It is an amazing, it's like a time capsule. And I think one of the reasons why people love the show so much is, man, what an awesome time. 1998, they had cell phones. The stock market was going like 20, they know 9-11. And just like the carefree like nature in which you could just watch six people screw off at a, at a coffee shop. Uh, it really does show you uh, what America was like at that time I mean, as opposed to what's popular now yeah. for most people. I mean, it yeah. wasn't exactly, exactly okay. an accurate depiction. Why did it hit? I got you. Why did it hit to the core well, and not of, this, did of the zeitgeist? Then. Yeah. But it's it still the nostalgia hit. now. Yes, my fifteen year old rewatched the whole thing there and was go. obsessed with it and right. whatever. You know, on the American Dream piece, there's a great book that I've mentioned on the show before, and we've actually had the author Justin Guest on the show as well, called "The New Minority," mm-hmm. and it's a look at the white working class. And part of one of the sections, it's actually a comparison of the white working class in the U.S. in Youngstown, Ohio, and the white working class in a, a like working class suburb of London. And they actually found that in some ways the belief in the American dream was kind of insidious. And the reason why is because if you have this pervading mythology of like, if you work hard, you can make it. And it's all about you, right? Your individual work ethic and agency and all of that, then it leads people to blame themselves when like that nurse that we played earlier when they're going through it and they're struggling. And I mean, she says something, she's like, I did everything right. Like I did everything right. And there's all this shame wrapped up on, in it. And it, it, what, he, what he found um, through, you know, like a statistical analysis is that that belief, that persistent belief in the American dream actually undercut activism hmm. because it led people more to look inward and be like, I must be doing something wrong. I must be a failure. And anyone can look at their life and find like, oh, I shouldn't have bought that or I shouldn't have made that decision or maybe I'm doing this wrong or maybe I'm doing that wrong. Everybody can do that, right? But it led them to focus inward rather than engaging in collective action to actually change government policy, mm. which I thought was a really, you know, a really interesting insight. So with regards to the American Dream, something I've been thinking about, and we've actually had the author of this book, The New Minority, on the show, which looks at the white working class. And he did an analysis comparing the white working class in Youngstown and the white working class in a suburb of London. And one thing that he found is that the idea of the American Dream is actually, in a sense, kind of insidious. Because if the idea is, you know, if you work hard, you can make it, 
then if you don't make it, the natural instinct is to say, well, I must have done something wrong. And so in a sense, Sagar, it sort of short circuits mm -hmm. the type of collective action that could push the government to make different policy decisions. So on the one hand, while of course it's bad that people feel like they can't make it and the American dream is dead, I'm actually for establishing some new mythology that's not all about like, if you don't make it, it's your fault, you should feel shame, you should feel horrible, you should examine everywhere that you went wrong in your life, and instead looks at not only personal agency, we can keep still, you know, hold open some piece of personal agency, but also looks at the manifest ways that elites and our government have completely failed the American people over decades. Yeah, I think the story of the U.S., just to tie a bow on it, is a battle between rugged individualism and then labor capitalism. And so the transition of the expansion West, and you know, it's like the uh, the California gold rush. You can go out there, you can make it on your own. Oops, a bunch of people go bust, and then we have like financialization, and we have mass industrialization, and you have, if anybody ever watched the TV show, one of my favorite shows, The Gilded Age, uh, the current season is actually really working through some of this, where where you have these titans of like robber baron type capitalism, mm. but you also have union uh, union officials that are emerging in a movement at the same time. And there's a scene where one of the guys tries to buy one of the union leaders off. And he's like, you don't really get what's going on here, do you? And whenever he goes back, and then that struggle is really the story of the modern industrial economy. It played out here, it played out all across Europe. And the way that US and Britain really uh, separated themselves from Germany and from Russia and others that went in a much more more communist direction is that their elites recognize that you have to treat and pay people better and enshrine their rights into law. And they basically acquiesce, whereas the Russian and the German monarchies were like, yeah, we're not doing basically any of that. And what happened to there? Their societies collapsed, broke down, and they had massive revolutions. So if we don't want to repeat the mistakes that they made, we have to do what really, I think, saved capitalism in a lot of ways, which is what FDR and his, uh, prede his predecessors did, is recognize those rights and incorporate it both into the rugged American story as well as recognizing that structural factors are, of course, going to impact, you know, everyday people's lives. And so, anyway, I think uh, the reason that we are currently in the scenario that we are is that we've swung r much more back in yeah. that direction and have really forgotten, I think, a cherished part of our history, which has been missing now for a long time. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. 
We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So last week, we covered all kinds of turmoil over at OpenAI. Sam Altman, the CEO, he was out, kicked out by the board. He was brought on by Microsoft. Then he was brought back in over at OpenAI. There were a lot of questions about, like, what is going on and why is this happening right now? Reuters got a look at a potential reason um, for why this action was taken at this moment. Let's put this up on the screen. So they say, ahead of OpenAI CEO Sam Altman's four days in exile, Several staff researchers wrote a letter to the board of directors warning of a powerful artificial intelligence discovery that they said could threaten humanity. This was according to two people familiar with the matter. That's what they told Reuters. That previously unreported letter and AI algorithm were key developments before the board's ouster of Altman, according to those two sources. Um, So OpenAI declined to comment, but they did acknowledge in an internal message to staffers a project called QSTAR. Mm -hmm. The OpenAI spokesperson said the message sent by a longtime executive alerted staff to certain media stories without commenting on their accuracy. Some at OpenAI believe that QSTAR could be a breakthrough in the startup search for what's known as artificial general intelligence. One of the people told Reuters, OpenAI defines AGI as autonomous systems that surpass humans in most economically valuable tasks. So um, we have a lot of details about what this alleged breakthrough is or even, you know, additional reporting about whether this is, in fact, accurate. But the reason that this potentially tracks Sagar Mm -hmm. is because the divide in the AI community, as reflected in the divide within OpenAI, is between the tech optimists who are basically like, let her rip. Let's go make tons of money. Let's just like develop this like crazy. Let's see what we can do. Let's push the boundaries here. And more of the, um, you know, it's actually a lot of like effective altruists, but that side of the tech community that is very worried about the risks of AI development, what it could mean for um, humanity, what it could mean for jobs, what it could mean for, you know, potential dangers for the future. And with Sam Altman being brought back in, Uh, effectively his side of the tech optimist piece won out and the people who want to just, you know, profit as much as possible, put it in the hands of corporations like Microsoft and develop it to its fullest extent right now um, with few guardrails, that side of the equation seems to be winning out. Yeah, I I have complicated feelings on this because I I understand that that's a useful framework, but the thing is about Sam and these effective altruists and others is that, yeah, they believe in the profit and all of that, Mm -hmm. but really what they believe is... Uh, it's like responsible AI. And what they mean by that is 
Pairing with giant corporations like Microsoft and regulation and control so that they're the only ones that really get to use the technology. So I kind of find myself in a more anarchist position with AI where my deepest suspicion doesn't actually come through, uh, you know, like, oh, they're going to replace us and all of this. My fear is exactly what's happening right now, which is total corporate capture and control, mm -hmm. where effectively we're watching Microsoft develop the world's greatest office enterprise technology and all of the money being funneled into how to make Word, Excel, and Skype calls and Teams more efficient, which is, in my opinion, the worst use of research dollars and other things, as opposed to actually helping people. And so watching really what it is, is the titans of Google and Facebook and Microsoft now basically capture the entire stream of AI development and others makes me more worried about the future than any sort of of AI breakthrough that's going to, you know, replace all of our jobs and other this. So some of this was, you know, captured in the CNBC interview where they talk here about how Microsoft Satya Nadella really is the true winner. Here's what they had to say. The golden child, Altman, is ultimately really in Microsoft's hands. And I think the way they played this was a poker move for the ages for Nadella. And I think as it plays out, you had little kids playing checkers at the kids table in terms of this, the open AI board and then the the master chess master came in here and i think right now it's microsoft just that much more of a flex the muscles on ai what you want to see from jassy and aws okay what do you bring it show us the technology how could i have confidence from a share perspective that you're not going to be potentially the third player behind microsoft behind google this is an arms race playing out and right now microsoft and they're popping champagne and redmond because of the way Nadella played this out. Capped profit structure that Sam instituted in 2019. The idea here was to cap investors' profits at 100 times their original investor investment because he suggested that if OpenAI could get to uh, so-called artificial generalized intelligence, which is this sort of more sophisticated AI that we seem to be moving toward quickly, that it could be so powerful and so lucrative that he wanted these investors not to sort of hold all of the value in the world. In fact, he spoke at one of my events uh, for Strictly VC, which is now a subsidiary of TechCrunch, and he said that if OpenAI manages to crack this particular nut, it could, quote, maybe capture the light cone of all future value in the universe. And that for sure is not okay for, for one group of investors to have. Yeah, so the future value of all, who's gonna own that? OpenAI and Microsoft. So right. uh, really, again, let's look at who he actually replaced the board with. Let's put this please up there on the screen uh, that Kevin Roos wrote about AI belongs to the capitalists. You have freaking Larry Summers here on the board. I mean, one, like a cartoonish figure of quote unquote responsible corporate capitalism. And then you have a former Dropbox executive and Adam D'Angelo um, of Quora. So I, if you put all this together, Crystal, yeah. where I look at it is I am most afraid of exactly what's happening right now, where AI is becoming a corporate tool of white collar in of not only white collar industry, but just like plus plusing up any sort of HR and other stuff, as opposed to funneling towards technology that would actually help most Americans in their daily lives. They're trying to focus on reducing HR costs and legal fees and all that. Listen, I support all of that. But should that really be the sole driver of our innovation? This is why I think some of the conversation around this can get really muddled. Well, there's a lot yeah. of different levels. Yeah. So the piece you're pointing to, you know, what are corporations incentivized to develop? 
they are incentivized to develop anything that's going to be profitable to them. Mm -hmm. There will be many applications, potential applications of AI that would benefit humanity that would not be particularly profitable. Yes. Those are not going to be developed. Right. Like, that's the reality. Um, on the other hand, what do corporations love to do? Eliminate human beings and their usefulness mm -hmm. and their jobs. Because human beings cost a lot of money and they take sick days and they have babies and they're complicated and whatever. So let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of their their jobs. And so there will be huge incentive to develop AI that can enable the elimination of jobs. So that's the, the corporate piece that you're pointing to. Um, but, you know, my feelings about AI sort of ranges from terror to comedy. I don't mm -hmm. know if you guys saw, there's a story about, um, was it ESPN or Sports, Sports Illustrated? Sports yeah, Illustrated. Sports Illustrated, yeah. That got caught using these AI-generated articles. And they were preposterous. Like, they were so bad. The writing was so weird and clunky. It was like an alien, you know, trying to write about volleyball or whatever it was. And then on the other hand, you have this story reported out by the New York Times that the deployment of AI-controlled drones that can make autonomous decisions about whether to kill human targets is moving closer to reality. Hmm. Lethal autonomous weapons that can select targets using AI are being developed by the U.S., China, and Israel. Mm -hmm. Killer robots that can autonomously decide whether you're going to live or die. So, um, and obviously for the military industrial complex, that is very profitable as well. So that's like the nexus of both the terror of what this could, could mean for humanity and also the profit motive. So that's why it's troubling that the people, it's not just who was put on the board, the people who were taken off the board were the people who were like, you know, the more of the academics, the technologists who were concerned with some of the direction, both in terms of the corporate capture and also in terms of what this could mean for jobs and what this could mean for the future of humanity. Those people are taken out and freaking Larry Summers brought yeah, in. Yeah, I know. The Summers piece is particularly offensive to me. I, it also, though, a part of what I get the most skeptical about are all these AI safety advocates. Where I'm like, what are, what are we saying here? Like, what are you trying to program in here? And I see the government and Biden stepping in being like, we need an AI bill of rights. And I'm like, well, maybe conceptually, but I don't actually trust you to be able to implement this into the technology at all. I think there needs to be some level of democratic input. So I'm genuinely But very, the democratic input, I mean, that's what the government is supposed yes, to Yes, well, not, but the White House is <laughs> That's the idea the White House that, is that the government is supposed to, is supposed to be where the democratic input yes, comes from. Yes, but I from. think it needs to come through Congress and not from the White House and top down. And actually, my bigger fear is less about the government, at least right now, because they're not doing anything. It's all these fake nonprofits that are out there being like, we're developing the AI code about this and that. There's already been problems with chat GPT or around political bias and all these other things. And that's where, the again, where I fear is the concentration of AI in basically woke capitalism, where through Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook applied almost entirely to enterprise technology. And you're just gonna have software rule your drone cubicle life if you happen to even make the cut for afterwards. And I genuinely think that is what the future of this is going to look like, as opposed to, you know, all of our daily lives changing. I just think white collar work is the only thing which will marginally change, but in my opinion, probably in a worse direction where things are more automated. But the hope that I have here is that in every case, like the Sports Illustrated and others, these things have turned out to be so clownish that it just reveals to us how in some ways it's so far away. Like we're not even close to AI being able to replace a human journalist. I, it would take five to maybe 10 years. And 
We heard for years about car development. I talk about the self-driving car thing a lot. Yeah, you know, automated autopilot is cool, but can it turn left really well yet? No, and it's taken them, what, Tesla's been around since 2008, you know, working on this technology, and they have billions and billions of dollars that they've thrown into it, and they still haven't really mastered it. So, and, you know, we saw the Austin example about all those self-driving cabs that come like this. This is a really, really difficult problem to yeah. solve. I'm less worried as some people are. Uh, the military application yeah. to me is really scary because um, let's imagine, I mean, we can already see, like, what Israel's doing in Gaza right mm-hmm. now, that there isn't a lot of concern for who's a civilian and who's a combatant and who's a woman and a child and who's an actual Hamas militant, et cetera. So while the technology may not be all the way there in terms of discriminating, um, they may not really care. Mm. Um, I don't think that there's any evidence that they would really care. And so if it's an autonomous drone that's murdering people, like where's the, there's no chance of accountability. At least if it's a human operator, or there's some sort of a chain of command, at least there's a possibility of holding some sort of human being accountable. If you have drones that are able to themselves decide who gets to live and who gets to die. And this is active, actively in development by us, China and Israel, and getting closer and closer to fruition. Yeah, that's something I'm very concerned about right now in the near term. I think that's fair. Uh, I just, look, humans are always gonna have to make some sort of decision. So this is something I talked about with Mark Andreessen. It's like, at the end of the day, like humans are gonna have a level, a, a tremendous level of input. And you know, we can think about that. What is the true difference between where we are right now, where Israel decides where to bomb, and yet they use a JDAM, a guided precision bomb, which where we pick the target and then the missile and computer targeting systems work to hit that. There will always be some level of decision-making that gets programmed into it from what the actual want of the person is. So what truly separates that? Is it just that we can deliver the bomb in a quicker manner? Because at the end of the day, like the human discretion and the political determination of how and what it will be used, I don't think that's going away anytime soon. Maybe uh, the AI can roll this clip of me 100 years from now and make fun of me Mm -hmm. uh, while, you know, my grandchildren are living in the matrix. But we'll see. Let's move on to Ireland. There's been a lot happening uh, in Ireland that you might have seen this broken out over the last week or so. Riots and violence exploding in downtown Dublin. Let's go ahead and play some of this footage. Absolutely crazy, crazy stuff in the middle of a Western European capital. And of course, there's been a lot of, I think, media misinformation and reporting around all of this. It's even ensnared um, the king, UFC king, Conor McGregor. (laughs) And so anyway, what exactly is going on behind the scenes here? So at a very, very basic level, here is what happened. There was a stabbing incident which involved a foreign national, whoever, though, had actually lived in Ireland since 2003. So let's please put this tear sheet up there on the screen, which from the Times of England, which actually has some of the best reporting that we've seen on the subject. Quote, the suspect arrived in Ireland in 2003, applied for asylum. His application was rejected, his deportation ordered, but he successfully challenged it, and he now has full residency rights. There are suggestions that his mental health had deteriorated after he was diagnosed with a brain tumor about two years ago, and his friends had told the police that his behavior was changing radically afterwards. He was then arrested in possession of a knife in Dublin last May and appeared before the district court in June. The outcome is unclear. He went on to stab multiple small 
small children in Ireland. The riots essentially then were set off with anti-immigrant sentiment. However, Crystal and I, you were talk we were talking about this, and I think they have really mischaracterized a lot of what is happening here. Yes, a lot of this is downstream of immigration, but Ireland is facing a very, very serious housing crisis right now, which has a huge part to do not only with Islamic refugees, but also a lot of Ukrainians. So let's please put this up there, and I'm also going to read some statistics. Quote, Ireland demography has been transformed in decades. A fifth of the five million people now living in Ireland were born elsewhere. And a recent increase in refugees from Ukraine and other countries has fueled a backlash amid concern over a housing shortage and straining public services. The number that is housed by the state has jumped from 7,500 in 2021 to 73,000 in 2022. Quote, Ireland has received more than 141,000 immigrants in the last 12 months through April. That is the highest total in Irish society since 2007. And the influx of migrants has driven an 11% increase in Irish population over the last 11 years, which has contributed to a steady increase in housing, in housing prices. So really what I think this is, Crystal is a story not only of mass immigration, but of, frankly, Ukrainian refugees and other refugees from around the world that are flooding into Western Europe. As these Western European capitals have to grapple with uh, their tremendous social safety net, their Western liberal politics, but frankly, disregarding, and this is what I think the reason that this really touched here, was their own domestic population whose houses are getting so unaffordable as they're watching foreigners get housed in state housing, as you have Irish citizens and others who are homeless on the street, that was like the core of the spark here. And I haven't seen that particularly well articulated in Western media as to what's happening. And we'll get to the crackdown in a second if you want to comment on any of this. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and listen, to state the obvious, just as when we're analyzing what mm. happened on October yeah. 7th, it's Ireland. not a justification. Yeah. Yeah. And as we're analyzing right. what happened with these riots, also not a justification. But yeah, when you couple um, the highest homelessness that Ireland has ever seen, yeah, massive housing crisis, Ireland's—they um, were one of the the countries that got the most screwed in the 2008 financial crisis and have, in some ways, never recovered. So when you couple this, but I think the housing piece seems to be really central, you know, based on the analyses that we we're able to read. And like I said, the very high homeless homelessness rate. When you couple that with, um, you know, a large influx of people from other countries, you have created a tinderbox in which, yeah, the easiest thing for people to do is going to be, and for, you know, cynical politicians and influencers and whoever, is to blame the immigrants. And, you know, it's classic scapegoating. That's very common to see what unfolded here. And, uh, you know, and there was like misinformation about who this person actually was, the context of actually this dude's been here for 20 years, by the way, was not in there whatsoever. But it it lit the spark that explodes in these unbelievable uh, riots that unfolded. Also worth mentioning that the uh, man who disrupted the attack, who hit the dude who was stabbing children uh, over the head with his helmet, was a recent immigrant from yeah, Brazil. from Brazil. He was actually thanked by Conor McGregor. So let's let me just, tie it into uh, just to be clear. But um, but yeah, I think you know it's it's we have had this idea of you know the Ukraine war and that 
Uh, it's obviously beautiful that all these countries have taken in mm. refugees, and we covered yesterday how the U.S. was really central. I mean, the reason that this war has gone on, on and on and on. And we can't deny the fact that, especially in a time when um, countries' safety nets are stretched, when inflation is tough, when people all over the world are feeling very stretched economically, that this is the type of politics that oftentimes results. Well, I mean, I just looked it up. The average sale price of a home in Dublin is 1.3 million euro <laughs> as of last month. And people feel like yeah. they're, they can no longer afford to live in the neighborhoods where they yeah, grew up and where nuts. their family is, et cetera. They feel like, you know, and like they have no hope and all of this. Again, not justification, but just to understand these things don't come out of nowhere. And so instead of focusing classic, like, you know, sort of neoliberal political move, rather than focusing on those core problems, well, what should they do instead? They're going to crack down on the misinformation. And let's get to that, because this is what the response of the Irish government has been, which is, no, we don't need to maybe reconsider our refugee resettlement population, or we don't need to reconsider our housing policy. We need to crack down on hate speech, which is what incited these riots, which is why Conor McGregor is under investigation. Here is the prime minister laying some of this out as a response to the riots. In addition to that, I think it's now very obvious to anyone who might have doubted it um, that our incitement hatred legislation is just not up to date. It's not up to date for the social media age uh, and we need that legislation through and we need it through within a matter of weeks um, because it's not just the platforms who have a responsibility here and they do. Uh, there's also the individuals uh, who post messages and images online uh, that stir up hatred and violence uh, and we need to be able to use laws to go after them individually as well. Got to go after the people who are talking about how it's BS that Ukrainians are getting free housing when an average home price is $1.3 Yeah, that sounds like the right thing to do. Uh, here is one of their Green Party senators. This is a very viral clip, but it really represents this ideology that's prevalent all throughout Western Europe about what freedom of speech actually means to them. Basically nothing. Take a listen. When you think about it, all law, all legislation is about the restriction of freedom. That's exactly what we're doing here, is we are restricting freedom, but we're doing it for the common good. You will see throughout our constitution, yes, you have rights, but they are restricted for the common good. Everything needs to be balanced. And if your views on other people's identities go to make their lives unsafe, insecure, and cause them such deep discomfort that they cannot live in peace, then I believe that it is our job as legislators to restrict those freedoms for the common good. There you go. Safetyism in a nutshell. Sounds like uh, a bunch of conservatives right now talking uh, about anti-Semitism huh. on college campuses. I had to slip that in there, huh? No, I mean, you're not wrong. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Uh, but, and here's the thing. This is leading to now Conor McGregor's investigation for this following tweet. Let's put this up there on the screen. I'm going to read it to you directly. He says, Innocent children ruthlessly stabbed today by a mentally deranged non-national Dublin in Ireland today. Our chief of police had this to say on the riots of the aftermath. Not good enough. There is grave danger among us in Ireland that should never be here in the first place. There has been zero action done to support the public in any way, shape, or form with this frightening fact. Not good enough. Make change or make way. Ireland for the victory. God bless those attacked today. We pray. That's what he said. And they're claiming that he glorified violence. And yet they're ignoring that he thanked the Brazilian uh, Im immigrant, but Brazilian Irish immigrant who actually stopped 
the violence. He says, I don't condone last night's riots. I don't condone attacks on our first responders in their line of duty. I don't condone looting. Last night's scenes achieved nothing towards fixing this issue. I do understand the frustrations, however, and I understand a move must be made to ensure the change that we need is ushered in. That's what he said. What's wrong with that exactly? Even and, if he did say something wrong and heinous right. and terrible. Well, and certain, yeah, let's he, put that aside. Yeah, but then he still should be able to say those things. And it's such a dodge to just be like, oh, we're going to crack down on the misinformation as if that's going to solve the, the underlying problems. I mean, it's just like very similar to here. They don't want to admit the actual problem here. And, you know, Ireland's a small country. They got 5 million people. 140,000 people is a lot of people. And you know, 20% of your population being foreign born. And I'll press the red button and I'll go to what Margaret Thatcher said of her own country. Europe is about history. America is about an idea. It's like these are very different populations with very different understandings of immigration. They, I think, behave in a completely irresponsible manner whenever it comes to refugee resettlement and all of this. And you combine that with their generous welfare states and neglecting their own population. I don't, I mean, I just think, Crystal, the more I did research into this, I was honestly shocked at the way that it has been portrayed. It's when you look at you know, political science analyses of um, countries with large uh, immigrant populations, when things are going well, it's fine. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when people feel like I can buy a house, I can have a family, I can have a job, I can have a good income. But when things are not going well, then guess what? Again, you're going to look for scapegoats. And this is a tale as old as time. So, um, so in any way, in any case, the idea that you're going to fix it by, like, cracking down on yeah. social media and yeah. Conor McGregor is silly. Not going to happen. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's Dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's talk about some domestic politics here. This is stunning. This is brazen, even for the pretty brazenly typical corrupt state of American politics. You now have two candidates who are right now in the Democratic primary for Senate in Michigan who have been offered separately $20 million by a donor to drop out and primary Rashida Tlaib, (laughs) who of course has come under incredible fire for her uh, public stance in favor of uh, Palestinians and Palestinian humanity and calling for a ceasefire. Let's take a listen to, uh, we actually talked to this candidate, Nasser, on this show recently about how he was approached and offered $20 million to drop out and primary Rashida Tlaib. Take a listen. I was offered $20 million to withdraw from the senatorial race and run against my friend Rashida Tlaib. The pro-Israel lobby will go to any length to remove anybody from the U.S. Congress that has any opposition to their agenda and their total unequivocal support for Israel, good, bad, or indifferent. We need to make sure that money is not the main catalyst to get people elected because the pro-Israel lobby is only tool and what they use to threaten politicians is the amount of money they're gonna spend against them or for them. America, let's come together and elect people who truly represent our values. So uh, the other candidate uh, was a gentleman named Hill Harper, put this up Uh on the screen, another Senate candidate in Michigan who uh, Politico originally got this report that he was offered $20 million to uh, drop out and run against Rashida Tlaib. He confirmed the story. He says, I didn't intend for a private phone call to turn public, but now that it has, here's the truth. One of APAC's biggest donors offered 20 mil if I dropped out of the U.S. Senate race to run against Rashida Tlaib. I said, no, I won't be bossed, bullied, or bought. One of the crazy things here, too, by the way, and APAC denies, I should add, he says the group was absolutely not involved in any way in this matter. Our records indicate this individual has not contributed to APAC in over a decade. So that's their side of the story. But one of the really crazy things about this, Sagar, is that both Hill Harper and Nasser Baidun, they both are like calling for a ceasefire mm. and standing up for Palestinian civilians being killed right now. And um, I think the idea is just, you know, they know with Rashida Tlaib that she is a tireless advocate. They know she's outspoken. You, they know she's been a leader in this moment of calling for a ceasefire. I mean, she's Palestinian-American here. And so they sort of feel like we don't care who it is. We'll take anyone other than Rashida Tlaib because of her dedicated commitment on the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is really just a matter of we do it because we can. And it's one of those where they want to take her out just to show that it is possible. It's like to a teach a lesson. Morning shot, yeah. Absolutely. Across the I don't like Rashida Tlaib. I think she's actually uh, incredibly, I think she's done a disservice to her own Palestinian cause. We could talk oh, about I'd that in a different wildly way. wildly disagree with uh, that. 
Well, I mean, she's just conducted herself in a ridiculous manner. And she's honestly just fulfilled, like, in my opinion, the worst characteristics of I totally, totally being unable she's, to. No, that is not true. I mean, I mean she's, condemned, hospital, her, she's condemned the Hamas atrocities. Uh, that's not what we're talking she's about. She's been standing up for right. ceasefire and Palestinian civilians. So I think her I think inability she's been incredibly courageous to correct the record on the hospital attack just fulfilled the Which wildest is still, dreams. Still in dispute, by oh, the way. The UN, uh, what is it? Human Rights Watch came out yesterday and claimed Sovereign. that they but, bombed like every freaking hospital in Gaza. I am only going to say that she did herself no favors by doing that and by putting herself out there, and in my opinion, fulfilling the worst dreams of her critics. If you're a politician, you should know whenever you're going up against the wildest uh, lobby in all of American politics, you should probably not just hand them on a silver platter. But look, that's her life. She can do what she wants. I'm saying I don't like her. I think don't think she's done herself any uh, real service for the pro-Palestinian cause. But I don't support primarying her or you know getting her taken out by a major lobby for a foreign government. To me, I find that particularly offensive. So anyway, I'm looking at this and APAC and all their influence, and it's just shocking to me, you know, with the John Fetterman case as well, to watch how they have co-opted so many. Mm. of these Democratic politicians in recent times, even people who had expressed different differing views whenever they would come over the top and help them in some of their primary uh, processes. So Ryan's done a lot of great work on this. I know we've covered it here on the show as well. The Democratic majority for Israel, for example, coming in. I mean, I think, didn't they think they work against Nina Turner? Oh, if yeah. If I remember. So Ryan has all these details in his new book, The Squad, which I recommend. And it's actually incredible how much reporting he has on mm. APAC. Um, Democratic majority for Israel and other sort of allied groups. And he said when he was writing the book, he was like, am I crazy for including so much of this? But it ended up being so central to uh, shaping the Democratic caucus and trying to mold uniform views on Israel and Palestine. And so he has the behind the scenes story of Fetterman, who sees all this money coming in to crush Nina Turner. The first expenditures were actually against Bernie in Iowa, you know, coming in against Summer Lee, who's able barely to survive the, the onslaught. He sees all this coming in and he just goes to him and is like, tell me what I should say. And they had drafted a position paper. <laughs> And they sent it in to Democratic Majority for Israel and were like, how's this? And they're like, oh, we'll make some changes. And they're uh -huh. like, good, done and dusted. Here That's you go. Crazy. We're going to, this is what we're going to stand for now. Summer Lee, on the other hand, because she had previously sent some really basic, I think it was during the uh, Great March of Return, some really basic tweets in support of like, hey, maybe Israel shouldn't be you know, killing innocent civilians who are trying to peacefully protest. She knew she was going to be a target and there was no way out of it. Mm -hmm. And she was open with Ryan about that. Like in her head, if there was a way of doing the pulling the John Fetterman, it wasn't that she was like, oh, I would never do that. She was like, I knew it wouldn't work because I was already a target. And so, yeah, this was determinative in a number of races. And they, you know, secured the obviously very uh, uh, outspoken support now of Senator John Fetterman. Um, and uh, now they've said that they're going to spend even more money going forward. And we see these incredibly clumsy and naked attempts. And by the way, potentially illegal, because you can't, you can't just give a candidate $20 million um, and so if it's going to go through a super PAC, you also can't coordinate with them. And then there's a question of whether oh, these are like wait, straw that's donations. that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's also like not really legal to do this. But anyway, it just shows you how uh, disturbed they are that there is any dissent on the issue. And the other thing that comes through in Ryan's book, which is really interesting too, is you know, this is the one time when the squad has actually really stood up to Democratic leadership and President Biden. 
And a lot of it is because, you know, Rashida Tlaib, obviously this is an issue she yes. was passionate about. Ilhan Omar, obviously an issue she was passionate about. AOC really didn't know anything about Israel and Palestine. <laughs> Admittedly, like she yeah. admitted to that of coming in. <laughs> and some release, same things. This wasn't like a major focus of her, but because the adversaries were so fierce, it really sort of hardened them in their positions. Mm. Because they know they're never going to win those over, them over. So they're like, well, why not just say what I actually think since there's no way I'm going to keep these people from trying to primary me and destroy my political career. Absolutely. And I actually, I mean, I think it's a human thing on any level. If someone's going to be like, hey, screw you. You're like, well, hold on a second. I'm maybe going to think a little bit for myself. And if you're going to come out oppositional from the gate, I mean, remember that horrible, what was it, the AOC firing line interview? This happened like right after she was elected. She looked like such an idiot. Yeah. Um, throughout it. But uh, to underscore your point, we have this tweet from Mark Pocan, the congressman who's uh, from the Progressive Caucus. Let's put it up there. He says, quote, the truth is that, that APAC is a conservative org raising money from rich Republicans and tries to buy Democratic primaries with it. Distorts campaign finance law in the worst way. Their big money influence is toxic to democracy. Forget what they claim. Look at their record. Toxic money. And that's extraordinary coming from a Democratic mm -hmm. congressman. I'd be remiss, too, if I didn't mention uh, Thomas Massey, who's been putting them also on blast that's for true. running ads against him because he has a consistent policy. He's a libertarian where he says, I don't vote for foreign aid, period. And he said, I don't do it for Israel. I don't do it for Saudi Arabia. I wouldn't do it for Palestine. He's like, this is just not something that I do. And they are running millions of dollars of ads against him in Kentucky. So look, uh, if anything, wow. actually, I support um, people coming out and breaking with APAC kind of publicly because I think they saved you know, all this political capital and all this, and they blew it on the Iran deal. It's the single biggest mistake they ever made because they put themselves in direct opposition with the president of the United States, and they put all this ideological space open for people who dis who agreed with the Iran deal and Democrats, and then they tarred them as anti-Israel. And they're like, well, if you're going to tar me as anti-Israel, I'm going to say what I actually think. And anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic. Well, that came a little bit later, and that mm -hmm. came now. And now we have Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and others, and you have an entire generation of younger people, too, who, you know, it drives me crazy. People are like, she's pro Hamas. Okay, as I just laid out here, I think she conducts herself like a fool. I don't think she's pro Hamas. That's a ridiculous statement. Yes. When you say you're pro Hamas, you say, I support the terrorist attack of October 7th. Yes. So like words have lost meaning on anti-Semite, anti-Israel, anti-Zionism, pro-Hamas, pro-Palestinian, and they've tried, you know, with great success, I think, to use that in the past for their tactics of the past. In the modern age, though, people just see right through it. It's just totally ridiculous. Maybe, but that amount of money, because remember, it's not like when they're spending that money that every ad is about Right, Israel. it's about other stuff. It's yeah, about whatever they can find to try to dislodge this person from power. So, you know, I mean, Ilhan Omar, actually, they kind of messed up last time around because they didn't really spend a lot of money against her, and she narrowly won. I was going to say, so if I remember, she ran 18 points behind Biden in her district, but she I don't still remember. did win. I don't remember the election. numbers. She yeah. won, but it was much closer than they expected. Yeah. Um, and so I, a lot of these members who have supported a ceasefire, uh, they have a target on their back, and, you know, they're denying the hundred million number that got reported of the amount of money that they're going to flood into these races. But, you know, um, that's not, so, it's not something to sneeze at. And clearly they're making an aggressive effort to try to make sure that there is no sentiment in favor of Palestinian statehood or criticism of the Israeli government, or certainly, you know, the, the current moment calling for a ceasefire. And uh, it is remarkable, because you remember Ilhan Omar put out that tweet, remember it's all about the Benjamins with regard to AIPAC money, and she was yeah. censured for that, and it was a whole thing. And so to now see Mark Pocan, who's much less mm. of like a radical than she is, 
saying effectively the same thing in potentially more polished terms. But you're right. The mask is kind of off and people now feel more comfortable calling out exactly what's happening Can here. we all just now acknowledge there was like a temporary insanity in American politics? She's <laughs> obviously right. And she's still right today. She but, was right. Yes. That's a whole- Justice for Ilhan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the RNC funding. Um, all right. So there was this moment in the debate. You guys probably remember the last debate that everyone hated and nobody watched. Whatever. But Vivek came out, out of the gates- swinging, and it was a bit of an unusual target mm -hmm. that he selected here in RNC, Rana Romney. McDaniel, are we supposed to drop the Romney now? Uh, oh, Ronna well, according McDaniel. to Trump, we should drop the Romney. Okay, <laughs> anyway, here's what uh, candidate for president Vivek Ramaswamy had to say. We've become a party of losers at the end of the day. We have a cancer in the Republican establishment. Let's speak the truth. I mean, since Ronna McDaniel took over as chairwoman of the RNC in 2017, we have lost 2018, 2020. 2022, no red wave that never came. We got trounced last night in 2023. And I think that we have to have accountability in our party. For that matter, Ron, if you want to come on stage tonight, you want to look the GOP voters in the eye and tell them you resign, I will turn over my, yield my time to you. And frankly, look, the people there are cheering for losing in the Republican Party. Think about who's moderating this debate. This should be Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, and Elon Musk. We'd have 10 times the viewership asking questions that GOP primary voters actually care about and bringing more people into our party. You think the Democrats, and we've got Kristen Welker here. I think right. it's preposterous to blame Ronna McDaniel for the losses in Virginia, for, you know, the losses on all the uh, mm -hmm. abortion ballot measures, the underperformance in the midterm. I mean, it's very clear what the big factors were here. But... There is some interesting reporting yeah. about something that, you know, is going on behind the scenes. I don't think he has a point. But anyway, put this up on the screen from the Washington Post with regard to the RNC's funding. Apparently, the Republican Party's finances are incredibly worrisome to party members, advisors to former President Donald Trump and other operatives involved in the 24 election effort. They just disclosed they have $9.1 million in cash on hand as of October 30th. That is the lowest amount for the RNC in any Federal Election Commission report since February of 2015. Compares with about $20 million at the same point in the 2016 election cycle. So they've got less than half of what they had at that point in 2016. And about $61 million four years ago when Trump was in the White House. The DNC has a lot more money, um, roughly double, 17.7 million as of October 30th. And as to what's going on here, there isn't a lot of insight. Uh, you've got a Tennessee RNC member who said it's just a revenue problem. We're going through the same efforts we always go through to raise money, the same donor meetings, retreats, digital advertising, direct mail, but the return is much lower this year. If you know the answer, I'd love to know what the staff has managed to tighten down on expenses to keep the party from going into the red. Donors have not cut as many large checks to the RNC in recent years, and the party's small donor program has also suffered. I wonder what your yeah. analysis is of what is going on here, because my guess is that, I mean, Trump is the Republican mm -hmm. Party. So, and we know the way that he really burns through his fundraising lists and exhausts donors with just constant repeated requests. And so I think he's burned their donor base and also is just like, it is him that is the party. So there's less incentive to then give to like the official party apparatus. I'll bring it back to uh, where I was talking about with Vivek. A, yeah. I think he had a point in terms of partnering with NBC, which I think is stupid, but let's put that aside. Yeah. And let's think about the RNC as it's constructed. You are right. 
macro level, it's never going to change anything. But I know a lot of people who actually worked at the RNC, and they were very proud because of a lot of money that they brought in in 2012, is that they invested a ton of the Romney money Mm -hmm. and all the other things in that time for a voter outreach system, which dramatically outperformed the DNC's similar technology Mm -hmm. in 2016, which, again, it's mostly because of Trump, but for these party apparatuses, it's all about infrastructure for smaller organizations right? mm-hmm. and candidates. Like Act Blue has been a massive success for Democrats, and Win Red has been ish, not not as good. I think what Vivek, the legitimate point I think he makes here, and also that this shows, is that bad stewardship of the party really is about investment at the party level, where you're able to help people in you know BS. In some race nobody's ever heard of, you can put some money in at the last minute, you can give them technology, you can connect people with volunteers, and that stuff just costs tremendous, tremendous amounts of money. So Ronna McDaniel has also, I think, been a bad RNC chairwoman, A, because she hasn't hasn't been able to raise money properly, B, she she can't pick a lane. Are you either pro-Trump or not? Like, what are we doing here? Are we going to do, uh, you know, we're endorsing a primary process. We're putting on debates, which Trump is not showing up to. So in some ways, she's oppositional to him, but she's also going to be supportive of him if he eventually becomes the nominee. She's tried to uh, govern in this very, like, middling direction. And I think that has both led to lack of fundraising, lack really of, uh, lack, also lack of relationship management with Trump, where why don't we have, like, the ground apparatus? Where Are we not sharing the mailing list and all these other things. I know this can sound boring, but the party itself has not performed at a good level. A lot of that is due to Trump, abortion, you know, all this other stuff. But in stuff that they can control, at least from what I understand, even the consultants and all these other people are very dissatisfied with her leadership. I mean, I have no idea. It's entirely possible that she's been a terrible leader. Mm -hmm. But I also would say, like, I think the, the biggest problem for them is probably structural. There's been a drop in grassroots fundraising across the board, Democrats, Republicans, um, you know, independent organizations. There's been a huge drop in grassroots fundraising. There may be a variety of reasons for that. One is people feeling really stretched. Another is they feel sort of like, you know, nihilistic, like, why would I give my money at this point? There may be a whole host of reasons, but that's kind of been an across-the-board phenomena. In terms of the big donors, if you're thinking about it, like, if you're a Trump person, you're going to give to Trump. Yeah. If you're an anti-Trump person, you're going to give to Nikki Haley or you're going to give to Chris Christie. Why would you give to the RNC um, if your project is either? Because Trump is the central dividing line in our politics and certainly in the Republican Party. So if you're a pro-Trump person, he is effectively the party. That's where you're going to invest your resources. And if you're an anti-Trump person, like Ronna McDaniel is effectively his, you know, he supports her and supported her staying Mm -hmm. in as RNC chair. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to give the money there. And, you know, and then you also have hanging over all of this, like all of the stuff that was happening in the House and they can't get a speaker and they can't pass any legislation and they're just sort of like in chaos and aimless and kind of a mess over there as well. So it also doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in the organization of the Republican Party institution itself. But I really think the key thing, if I had to guess, is just the fact that Trump has subsumed the party. Mm -hmm. You know, he is a much larger, like it's no longer about the Republican Party. 
It's about the person of Donald Trump. And so to me, that's probably the bigger story. That's, that's going it, on it, here. Definitely. Of yeah. course, that overlays it. I'm more saying like terms of what she can control. There was also yeah. an interesting moment uh, last night on Laura Ingram's show where Ron DeSantis was pressed on Ronna McDaniel and whether she should stay. And he was tripping all over himself on this answer. Let's take a listen to that. We'll be yeah, able to so do it So you think there should be no change well, at but, the RNC? Well, no, no change. I actually, it's, it's working out I well? Actually, I actually, I... I called for change after the midterms. I was the only presidential candidate running that called for change. I wasn't running no. at the time, but my well, view right. was we've lost all these elections in a row. Why are we continuing to do it? But here's the yeah. thing. As the nominee, I will be responsible for doing it, and I will get the job done regardless of who the chairman of it is. I led the drive in Florida. I'll lead the drive nationally. We can do it. We just need leadership. Yeah, we need a Republican Party that has a message beyond just, you know, Biden bad. So anyway, I think what Laura is reflecting there is there is a lot of activist energy that I see that is against RNC and the fact that DeSantis kind of has to pick and choose his mm. way through. Interesting to me. Very yeah. interesting. I, I just, last thing on this, mm. um, the focus on Ronna McDaniel just to me seems like cope because mm. they don't want to say it's Trump's fault. Or abortion. They don't want to say it's abortion. Like, those things are uncomfortable because then you have to deal with, like, you know, a core part of your base or a core part of the party platform or you got to deal with the the guy, Donald Trump, which almost all of them are afraid to do. And so she's, like, you know, a useful scapegoat here. And, you know, you look at the fundraiser and you're like, oh, it's, it's your fault. That must be the reason that we're losing. Maybe it's, like, 10th down the list of important factors in, in these elections. But a lot of it, this is a dodge to avoid dealing with the real central problems. Absolutely. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's move on to the next part. Uh, George Santos, he's facing possibly an expulsion vote in Congress sometime this week, but he's going out with a bang. <laughs> he did a uh, X a Spaces, uh, tw- formerly known as Twitter, uh, in which he really went off on some of his colleagues, alleging some pretty debaucherous behavior behind the scenes. <laughs> now look, he's a proven liar. Should we believe him? Maybe, maybe not. Although I suspect this may be the truest thing that he's ever said. Let's take a listen. <laughs> I have co- uh, colleagues who are more worried about getting drunk every night with the next lobbyist that they're going to screw and pretend like none of us know what's going on and sell off the American people, not show up to vote because they're too hungover or whatever the reason is, or not show up to vote at all and just give their card out like fucking candy for someone else to vote for them. This shit happens every single week. Reporters don't care to write about adultery anymore. and. Trust me, there's been plenty of this Congress. And nobody writes about it anymore because George Santos is here. They should look at it this way. Look, George, with George being around, a lot of this shit's going to go under the rug because none of the reporters write about it anymore. Just putting that out there because I think it's relevant. Who has no real track record of trading. This member has been able to outperform every single pointed measure of stock trading this year so far. I mean, talk about insider trading. And there's so much, there's so much, there's so much proof to just pinpoint to dates and times of when trades happen and when information was bought in front of that specific committee. He is going to be undermined all throughout this election process by the very people that should be supporting him. These people will undermine him. They will get in his way. They will uh, redirect voters from him to others. Make no mistake, there is a lot of members in this body who hate Donald Trump. So this has been his strategy, is to uh, wrap himself in the shroud of Trump mm-hmm. and be like, I'm on Trump's side. That's why you shouldn't take me out. As if it's That's not- why he cares so deeply about right. adultery. Yeah, he, he cares a lot about <laughs> adultery. That's why he had an OnlyFans account that he paid for with his uh, <laughs> campaign, campaign finance funds. My favorite is when he went, what did he went on TV and he claimed he didn't know what OnlyFans was and then is exposed to have been having a, an account. Uh, okay. Certainly an interesting. Reminds us a little bit of the Madison Cawthorn event. Let's put this up there on the screen. Don't forget, whenever he alleged that there were GOP lawmakers engaged in orgies and who did key bumps of cocaine in front of him, uh, he drew a huge ire from Kevin McCarthy and others who forced him to apologize. Again, it's possible he was telling the truth, too. Uh, But... All of this is in the backdrop of Santos facing a expulsion vote. Let's go ahead and put Axios, please, up there, where it currently looks like Santos says that he will not resign, um, that he that he will not resign, but is facing a vote of expulsion after that ethics committee report was released, which was the thing that 
Kevin McCarthy and Mike Johnson and others had hold, held on to. Johnson said that he spoke with Santos yesterday and that they're you know, looking at a variety of options, that he's kind of thinking about what he wants to do. But Santos has been pretty unequivocal that he won't resign. But of course, you know, it's, it'd be pretty humiliating to get expel, expelled from Congress. He would be the only sixth person in American history. This man is so. impervious to humiliation. Yeah. That's true. America's That's true. congressman just yeah. tells everybody what they want to right. hear whenever they, oh, right. you played volleyball? I play volleyball. Oh, oh God, I you're Jewish? I'm, I'm Jewish. Oh, you have a connection to the World Trade, <laughs> to the 9-11? Yeah. Oh, my mom was killed in that attack. So listen, for him, for Madison Cawthorn, whatever, we are all prepared to believe the most salacious mm-hmm. things you have to say about your colleagues there. Yes. But you got to bre- bring some receipts, okay? <laughs> Especially at this point, credibility yeah. is not exactly at a high watermark, uh-huh. shall we say, right at this moment. So, you know, if you're going to spill the tea, good. Bring some rece- receipts. Tell us who. Take some videos. Some yeah, yeah, go ahead. Send me the video. Expose I'll publish the it. truth. Yeah, expose the truth. We're all cheering for you, buddy. Anyway, so uh, will he get uh, expelled or not? You know, we'll see. It remains to be seen. If the vote will likely happen sometime this week, I mean, the Democrats are almost 100 percent on board. There have been some dear colleague letters that have been circulating of Republicans being like, "Hey, we shouldn't. Maybe we shouldn't kick him out." But the biggest issue for Santos is that even his Republican Party, remember this at home, they want him to go. They want him to resign. <laughs> yeah, the people who are in uh, his office say that they won't work with him. The mayor and others say that I absolutely refuse. So the local apparatus, the population, the Republican Party, and now House leadership and others, it, I don't see, I don't think he's going to last. If it comes to a vote, of which is very possible, I think I don't think he's going yeah. to kill last it looks like, at all. It looks like the swan song days for yes. our, our uh, great times with George Sanders. I'll miss his fashion and his <laughs> lip filler and, and so many other things. He was, the baby uh, he was carrying yeah, baby, around. Still don't know about that one. Maybe husband, uh, whether it's true or not. There's so so many so many things I'm gonna miss about Mr. George Santos, as you said, America's congressman. Okay, guys, uh, thank you so much for watching. I know it's been a long show uh, today. We've got uh, the merchandise on for sale. We of course have our uh, discount going for our yearly subscription. We appreciate, we love all of you. We have a great counterpoint show for everyone tomorrow, and we'll see you all on Thursday.
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.